y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, Libby Dinkman, veterans and military reporter for KPCC, and Tanya Mosley, host of the KQED podcast, Truth Be Told. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, from NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Happy weekend to my listeners and to my guest, Tanya Mosley, uh, joining us from the Bay Area, host of the KQED podcast, Truth Be Told, an advice podcast for people of color, and just named host of NPR and WBUR's Here and Now. Congrats, Tanya, and welcome. Thank you, Sam. How'd you find the time to be with us today? You're so busy. We're not going to go there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also here with Libby Dinkman. She covers veterans and the military for NPR member station KPCC. Thank you for being here. Hey, Sam. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this song, it's one of the best songs of karaoke to of all time, Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. It's one of those things where I know this song so well, but I can't tell you a thing about Mark Morrison. Do y'all <laughs> and I know? Can't I can't even tell you really the words. I don't even know the words that I'm saying. I know all of them, but yeah. I don't really know what I'm saying. It's just like in your bones at this point. It's more yes. of a vibe than yes. a lyrics thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I'm playing it this week because one of the 20-something candidates for president right now played this song as he took the stage at this week's Iowa Democrats Hall of Fame dinner. Um, so we know who sings this song, but can you name the candidate for the Democrats who played this song as he walked out? It must be somebody on the younger side. Kind of. What if it was what if it was Biden? Wouldn't that be <laughs> That would be amazing. <laughs> what? <laughs> Joe Biden two stepping out to return to the back. Right? That'd be great. It was not. It actually was a candidate you've probably not heard too much about, Andrew Yang. Oh, really? Yeah. Yes. Universal yes. basic income exactly. guy. Yes, that's right. Cory Booker picked Lovely Day by Bill Withers. Mm. Tulsi Gabbard picked Ain't No Mountain High Enough. I'm just dreading the onslaught of debate footage of literally 20 people. It's coming soon. I Too just much. want something other than these early polls that don't mean, mean anything. anything. Like, yeah. there's a reason that we don't have a President Tim Pawlenty right now. There's a reason that we don't have, you know, folks who were running hot in very early yeah. polling because nobody had really seen them talk about issues, talk about policies it's yet. Still a, it's still over a year till this turn election. Over a year. Anyway, I Appropriate could... banter is the music that they come out to until we get closer. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That's exactly. what we know about a candidate at this point. Yeah. We know their opening argument is Return of the Mac <laughs> or fill in the blank. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, we're going to start the show as we always do. I'll ask each of my guests to describe their week of news in only three words. Tanya, you're up first. Tug of war. Tug of war. Okay, what are you talking about? Honestly, Sam, you know, we could use tug of war every week for every news story just about, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I chose tug of war because I was so taken aback by uh, Jon Stewart before Congress, um, really blasting Congress for their failure to support the 9-11 first responders with the Never Forget the Heroes Act Mm -hmm. and really funding that. And the fact that there weren't... uh, congressional members there to actually hear out these first responders as they were asking for more funds to help with medical bills and other things like that. 
Yeah, you know, it was really riveting tape. So we know that Jon Stewart, former host of The Daily Show on Comedy Central, he's been involved in issues around veterans and 9-11 first responders for years. Uh, and he was lobbying Congress this week to, you know, get them some more money. So in 2010, Congress passed the 9-11 Health and Compensation Act that authorized more than $7 billion to help fund medical bills and, mm-hmm. and treatment uh, for those first responders. But that fund is running low. And so John Stewart came to the Hill with first responders and said, you have to give us more money. Um, and he chastised Congress because a bunch of folks that were supposed to be there were not there. There were empty chairs. And the tape is just riveting. What an incredible metaphor this room is for the entire process that getting health care and benefits for 9-11 first responders has come to. Behind me, a filled room of 9-11 first responders, and in front of me, a nearly empty Congress. Sick and dying, they brought themselves down here to speak to no one. It's shameful. It's an embarrassment to the country, and it is a stain on this institution. It's hard to tell what's going to happen with this bill, because who knows what the Senate will do, but do we know at all what the Senate's thinking about this. It seems like it might pass the House soon, but there's still questions about whether or not Mitch McConnell even brings this thing to the floor. That's right. I mean, I actually think he said a few days ago he hadn't thought about it. It's a very important Mm. issue, but there's so many other issues that he's thinking about as well. So we will see what will happen. There's really, as you said, we don't really know. We know that it's moving forward. Yeah. Do you guys think that part of the reason that that hearing room was half empty, they said most of the members who were present were on the Democratic side and a lot of the members who were not present were Republicans. Mm -hmm. When you look at a speaker like Jon Stewart, and he did have a history of skewing Republicans, Republicans. he made a career out of it, you know, and even though he's on this issue now that seems like a bipartisan and really um, uh, something that everyone can get on board with, he does have a history of using Republicans as a punching bag. But, you know, I think about the everyday people. That's this is the part of politics that people hate Mm. to know that. Yeah, it's this kind of thing that would stop our representatives from going and hearing about something that's so vitally important and taking action on it because their feelings might be hurt. Mm. You know, that is that is a thing that I think a lot of people find infuriating. That's true. Libby, do you have three words? I do. My three words are 12 fewer veterans. And it has to do with veteran homelessness. Uh So I cover veterans in the military at KPCC. And last week, you may have heard, we got a big report out on the state of the homelessness crisis in Los Angeles. And the top line numbers were kind of staggering. They really were. 12% increase across the county for the homeless population in LA, 16% in the city. Except? Except on the veterans front. I take this one slice of the population because veterans do experience homelessness at a higher rate than the civilian population. And so when we look at the veterans numbers in Los Angeles, in the face of big increases across Hmm. other groups in L.A. County, the veterans numbers stayed at about 3,800 between 2018 and 2019. And that 12, what was that? That 12 was between 2018 and 2019, there were... 12 fewer veterans counted out on the streets. Huh. So it doesn't sound like a lot. It's just 12 people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it is just a sign of how serious this humanitarian crisis is 
across Los Angeles yeah. and how they have to take the wins as they come. Yeah. Are we seeing improvements for veterans and homelessness across the country as well? Yeah. If I was talking about the national homeless picture, I would say besides California and some West Coast states, mm-hmm. we've really seen this massive success over the past 10 years. With veterans. With veterans. Okay. there There is, uh, since 2009, the number of veterans on the streets has been cut in half. Okay. It used to be 75,000, close to 75,000 veterans. It's now more like 38,000 veterans. Hmm. Many states actually have declared that they are at functional zero veteran homelessness. Wow. Mm. Delaware, Connecticut, smaller states, yeah. a impressive. number of communities. It's really impressive. Yeah. And it's been this huge effort and it's uh, consistent federal funding for housing vouchers, for transitional housing in mm. communities. And it's also, uh, according to service providers I've talked to, been a philosophy change towards mm. something called housing first. I keep hearing yeah. about this. Yeah. Yes. And so this is the idea that like, you can't fix anything else until they're just in a house yes. somewhere exactly. first. Yeah, it, it it comes from the idea that you don't have to be totally sober and passing drug tests and already in mental health treatment in order to get into housing. What we want to do is get folks into a stable situation mm-hmm. so they can have a launch pad to work on all those things. Yeah. So again, na- nationwide, the picture is really promising. Los Angeles has just not kept up. And it is this stubborn outlier that has 10% of the total veteran homeless population. Is in LA. Yeah. Wow. And the thing that I just like continue to think about when it comes to being homeless in in Los Angeles, the majority of new homeless folks, they're Mm -hmm. just homeless because the rent was too high. Mm. It's not addiction. It's not mental health. They just literally could not pay rent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're getting pushed off the end of this economic ladder. It's just this, I think of it as like the the boulder that we're rolling up a hill Mm. and more people are getting pushed off the edge. Every day, every day. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Libby Dinkman. She covers veterans and the military for NPR member station KPCC. Also here with Tanya Mosley, incoming host of NPR and WBUR's Here and Now. Y'all, I have three words. What are they, Sam? (laughs) I know, I'm waiting in anticipation. Anticipation. My words are socialist or nah. So this week we saw Bernie Sanders, a candidate for president, a Vermont senator. He made a major speech endorsing his brand of what he calls democratic socialism. And the speech was thought to kind of help him gain ground with the progressive wing of his party, which has kind of been gravitating towards Warren these past few weeks. Um, So Liz Warren has been ahead of Bernie Sanders for second place after Joe Biden in uh, two new polls this week. Um, And the question is... What type of progressive message does that progressive base want? You know, so you see Sanders say, I am a democratic socialist. But you see Warren, who advocates a lot of the same policies as him. She says, I'm not a socialist. I believe in markets. I want to, you know, Mm -hmm. police this stuff more, but I'm a capitalist. And so there's a big question about what kind of branding these progressives want. It's been interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do think Elizabeth Warren echoes a lot of what Bernie Sanders is saying about wealth being concentrated in too few hands, about the issue of working class Americans not being able to get by. But her solutions are within the system of capitalism and within the system we have, whereas Sanders is more about let's remake 
private health care. Let's remake this, you know, this whole system. I guess that's where they separate. But I don't know that he's clearly defining that yet. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Warren just has policy after policy she's coming out with every week bringing out a new policy. And other candidates are sort of left yeah. to scramble to put something together. Yeah. You know, oh, go ahead, Tanya. Oh, I was just going to say, in, is there power to his punch in this idea of uh, political revolution? You know, I'm thinking about during the last election and like he was trying to really get ordinary people involved in politics, really pushing against the corrupt elite, as he called them. Is that a message that really resonates when we have this landscape of folks who are using this same type of language and have, they have more specific plans in place on how they will implement all of these ideas? Yeah, well... I just am always intrigued when we see certain events in politics reveal that a group that we thought was a monolith actually is not. Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to go to a break. Coming up, we talk to a reporter covering a sexual abuse crisis in the church. Not the Catholic Church, but the Southern Baptist Convention. She tells me how that's changed the way she thinks about her own faith. After the break... I'm Sam Sanders. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out that new French restaurant and 4% on bowling with your friends. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now when you go out, you cash in. Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Support also comes from the Netflix original podcast, Tales of Your City. Partnering with independent queer storytellers, the podcast is an exploration of queer identity and community across New York, San Francisco, and four other cities in America. The podcast name is adapted from the beloved book series, Tales of the City by Armistead Maupin, and the new Netflix limited series of the same title. Listen to Tales of Your City now, with new episode drops every Monday. I'm Gregory Warner. On Rough Translation, we follow a rescue mission in real time. After an Iraqi photojournalist goes missing on the front lines. We don't believe it. I don't believe it. He leaves his family and his friends to try to save him. When he said, who is this? Or like, who are you? They respond, we are the Islamic State. From NPR's Rough Translation, listen and subscribe. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Libby Dinkman. She covers veterans and the military for NPR member station KPCC. Also here with Tanya Mosley, incoming host of NPR and WBUR's Here and Now. Uh, Tanya, Libby, have either of you, both of you, covered any aspect of the Me Too movement in your work? I have. Libby? Yeah, I haven't reported specifically on it, but of course, like any woman in the workplace, I've been watching it very, very oh, yeah. closely. You know, th- this Me Too movement, it has kind of made its way through all types of communities and places and spaces. And there's kind of a another angle of the movement that some folks are calling church too. There's been this groundswell of folks coming forward with accusations of abuse within churches and not just the Catholic Church. Um, This week, there was a Southern Baptist Convention in Birmingham, Alabama, their annual conference, and they did something very, very big there. They voted to amend their church constitution to make it possible for churches that mishandle sexual abuse 
to be removed. Uh, they also made a new committee to review allegations of abuse. And this all comes after years of really intense reporting about uh, a rampant culture of sexual abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention. So I wanted to talk about all of this. Uh, so I called up Kate Shellnut. She's a news editor for Christianity Today. And she was there at the convention covering all of this. Kate, hi, how are you? Hi, great. You know, before this week, I did not really know that there's a sexual abuse problem in the Southern Baptist Convention. I had heard for a while that there were racial tensions there in that convention, but those have been long running. Can you give us kind of the lay of the land of what the allegations are and how widespread this stuff is? Sure. I think the tipping point came actually last year um, in the wake of the Me Too movement, um, a kind of church to movement spurred. Hmm. Um, and there were a number of cases of women um, and some men. Um, but suddenly some of these uh, stories were getting, you know, headlines in the New York Times. Um, and as more and more people spoke up, um, we've seen uh, these stories continue, including a major investigation come forth from the Houston Chronicle that exposed 700 uh, known victims from uh, more than 250 credibly wow. accused predators. Yeah. I don't want to get too graphic, but I do want to, to the extent we can, talk about the kind of, I guess, typical scenario in which this abuse happened. Was it pastors? Was it other folks in the church? Was there a certain kind of trend line in these stories and these allegations? Sure. I would hate to name one archetype because um, anyone will tell you who has studied this or who has gone through it that um, predators are tricky people and mm. they will groom churches to trust them. Um, and they don't operate, you know, kind of in one way. But I think the ones that I've heard the most from are kind of teenage girls in a youth group setting with a youth pastor. And um, the person went on to abuse and rape, in some cases, these women um, under the guise of them having a kind of relationship between a teen and someone in their 20s um, who was on staff and in a position of leadership um, in a church. You know, in reading the stories of this abuse, the Southern Baptist Convention, folks knew this was going on, but not enough was being done. And there were some situations in which a youth pastor or someone in the church who abused someone would go to prison for the abuse, get out of prison, and then be able to find their way back into another Southern Baptist church. It's kind of mind-boggling. The thing about Southern Baptists is that they are, sometimes they don't even like to call themselves a denomination, even though they function that way, because the churches are completely autonomous and independent. Um, there's kind of a part of the evangelical spirit that really likes, you know, self-determinism. We get to choose and set the rules for our congregation. And so um, a lot of Southern Baptist churches said, well, because we're independent and autonomous, the denomination doesn't have oversight over who we get to hire or what our particular practices are in our congregation. And so for a lot of times, that was like the blanket excuse when people would say, how come the Southern Baptists can't do more to prevent one pastor from going to another church after they've been convicted? Yeah. How much of the actual work of changing this culture of abuse amongst Southern Baptist churches, how much of that work is going to be almost doctrinal? Like, is there a reality in which church doctrine allows for church leadership 
across the country to talk with young folks in Southern Baptist churches about abuse, how to spot it, how to report it. Would that change ever happen? Yeah, that's a huge factor here because um, also ahead of this convention, so just last week, they released um, a 52-page report that was the culmination of about a year of studying the issue of abuse within their own denomination and hearing from some experts, hearing from survivors, and essentially making recommendations to churches. There were a number of theological points that were included in that, including the theology around women's roles in Southern Baptist churches um, and how there's often kind of limited space or limited leadership in some scenarios for for women, um, and also um, around how they talk about sex and sexuality mm. to make sure children are equipped um, to recognize when things are inappropriate and to speak directly to them. The big question now is how many individual churches will really take the recommendations to heart? Yeah. You know, I wasn't raised Southern Baptist. I was raised Pentecostal, like for real evangelical. And one of the parts of that doctrine that is also a part of a Southern Baptist doctrine is this idea that the the man is the head of the family and the male pastor is the head of the church and that there is kind of this pecking order of leadership and superiority almost with men at the top and women and children coming next. How much of that doctrine facilitates an environment in which abuse can become more rampant? I have been surprised to see that Southern Baptists are more and more recognizing that as a a factor. Mm. The president of the Southern Baptist Convention had actually a panel of women that he spoke with, and he asked one of them, do you think our teachings on women uh, or the lack of women in leadership has made this problem worse? Um, And for him to just recognize that, I thought was pretty remarkable. The other thing that's interesting is that um, people have spoken out about if you are a victim and you have an all-male pastor staff at your church, um, is that really who you want to go to to report? Would you be afraid that they weren't going to trust you? So even on a practical level, there needs to be women who, um, who victims who are largely women, not exclusively, but who women can go to um, when things go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with this story of abuse in the Southern Baptist Church, I cannot help but thinking of parallels between this story and stories of abuse in the Catholic Church. Uh, And with both of these, I really can't stop thinking about how religion and belief, you know, complicate these issues that many on the outside would say are pretty cut and dry. Are there some things you're hearing Baptists tell you about all this stuff that is particularly Baptist and religious that folks on the outside just wouldn't get? Yeah, I think specifically of um, victims and survivors themselves, the idea of the place where you, um, in some cases, were first affirmed and felt safe and felt God, um, that that would be the place where this deep violation and crime would take place. There's a number of people, obviously, who have left the church and do not trust it, and who even have like a tenuous relationship with God, if they even still believe in God, because of what's happened to them. And that's scary. On the other hand, there's also women um, who have spoken up about the idea that, you know, even though the church is where the worst thing in my life happened to me, it's also the only way that I could have gotten out of that. Even when people didn't believe me, even when I was in my darkest place, I really felt God knew me and saw me there. Um, and and he's the reason that I'm still here rather than 
kind of the structure of the church itself. Yeah. I don't know your background, religion, but I'm curious if you think that covering this story and abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, has it changed your views on faith or the way you think about faith and belief writ large or even personally? Yeah, I'm not a Southern Baptist, um, but I am a Christian. Um, I don't know. I think it's taught me a sense of humility and listening uh, that for a while the Southern Baptists thought this couldn't happen to us. And then even when they started recognizing the problems, there was an impulse to here's how we fix it. And a lot of times that was here's how we deal with it quickly. Here's how we cover it up. So I think the lesson that I take away personally is the, just the power of listening to victims and survivors. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you. Thanks again to Kate Shelnut, news editor for Christianity Today. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm here in studio with Tanya Mosley and Libby Dinkman. Uh, there's a lot there to unpack. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. if something bad happens to you and you're just out living your life, you say, well, something bad happened to me. But if something bad happens to you in a place that you trust like the church, you say, did God do this to me for a reason? Mm. Did I deserve it? Who did I fail? It must be my fault. All of these issues are exacerbated by this certain type of guilt that just can feel very specific to faith, if that makes sense, you know? You know what it really feels like is if there's abuse in the family. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that this conversation really brought back to me was the issue of purity culture Hmm. in uh, churches. Mm -hmm. And I I think back to Elizabeth Smart, who has talked a lot about the abuse that she suffered when she was kidnapped. And she was a member, is a member of the Mormon church. So it's a different denomination. But her conversations when she got back about how teachers were still telling her that if she lost her purity, she was to be discarded, that no no man would want her. And so I think that that's another factor in in talking about this Baptist church situation or anything to do with faith, because there's this added expectation that you're Mm -hmm. saving yourself and that if abuse happens, what does that mean about you, about your worth? Exactly. All right. It's time for a break. When we come back, we'll play my favorite game. Who said that? BRB. Support for NPR and the following message come from Penguin, publisher of Turtles All the Way Down by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars. Turtles All the Way Down is about one girl's struggle with anxiety and the support she receives from family and friends on her journey of self-acceptance. People magazine calls Turtles All the Way Down a tender story about learning to cope when the world feels out of control. Now available in paperback wherever books are sold. A language was about to die. Once it gets wiped out, that's it. We will have nothing in our language to pass to our children. And the people trying to save it were still learning how to speak it. And we had to hurry up. Time was working against us. We were like 100 years late, you know. It's Code Switch. Listen and subscribe. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests. Tanya Mosley, host of the advice podcast Truth Be Told and soon to be host of NPR and WBUR's Here and Now. And Libby Dinkman, she covers veterans and the military for NPR member station KPCC. Tanya, give us a piece of advice right now. Go. Quick and easy. Always drink your coffee in the morning. (laughs) 
Okay. As opposed to night. Right. As opposed to <laughs> always when you wake up within 30 minutes. I'm okay. learning this. I like that. I'm going to give both of you an, some advice about how to play this next game. Who said that? My advice is don't worry about it. It's just a game and there is no prize. <laughs> anyway, with that, let's begin my favorite game. Who said that? Is there really no prize? I mean, bragging rights. I mean, I showed up. I, I showed up for this taping. I'm expecting a, some kind of a prize. We will give you a participation trophy. <laughs> you know the game. It's really simple. I share a quote from the week. You have to guess who said that or just get a keyword. Tell me what story it's about, etc. We'll do three of these. Let's go. Ready? First quote. I think to be respectful to opponents is to play hard against opponents. Who said that? Biden. <laughs> no. Uh, there was a big sports issue. I'm going to say week. Megan Rapino. What sport? U.S. Women's National Team Soccer, That's of course. It. That's ah. it. Yes. So that was actually Jill Ellis. She's the okay. coach of the okay. U.S. Women's Soccer Team. And she was responding to critique of her team after some critics said that the women went too hard when they beat Thailand in the FIFA World Cup. 13 to 0. Nope. Eh, and not Alice wrong. said, if this was a 10 0 in a men's World Cup, would we get the same questions? She said, uh, as a coach, I don't find it my job to harness my players and rein them in because this is what they've dreamed about. This is it for them. This is a world championship. This gets me so heated. Tell Sam. Me, Can tell you me. tell? I'm just, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting up in my chair leaning forward because this is the World Cup. It's not yes. make best friends cup. It's not, oh, I want to take care of everyone else's feelings cup, which is what women are always asked to do. Yeah. It's the, world, the cup. world cup. This is a situation that these women have trained for for their entire lives. And if they're good, they're good. They're mm -hmm. amazing. This has been a pent up situation for years mm -hmm. and years of training, years mm -hmm. of qualifying. They've been isolated in training camps. They are letting go, finally, mm -hmm. letting loose. Why do we have to nitpick every single time a woman takes up too much space or shows too much celebration? Whatever happens, she is somehow either being too mopey or too excited. Final thought is that the women are also suing for equal pay right now oh, yeah, with the yeah, men's national team. Mm -hmm. Yes. The ratio so was like insane. It, 38 cents to every dollar that the men earn is what, what? they earn. Wow. So when you talk about showing off that you are the premier soccer powerhouse in this country, these women deserve to be paid equal to the men. And this is all part of the context of what was going on that day. So leave the U.S. women's national team alone. Yeah. Libby has yes. spoken. <laughs> Libby has won the point and my heart. <laughs> all right, next quote. Ready? If supported by the market, the agency can accommodate up to two short-duration private astronaut missions per year to the International Space Station. Who said that? What organization said that? What department said that? What government department said that? I just said International Space Station, y'all. Come on. Yeah, you did. Elon Musk? What federal government agency said it? <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Space you just Force? said it. <laughs> no, you're so close yet so far away. <laughs> Who are the folks in the government that deal with the spaceships? The Air Force? No. <laughs> NASA? NASA, yes. Yes. We're, is this... 
you just filled my heart with so much support for you after that last quote, and now we're doing <laughs> back to zero. I was so worked up, I couldn't, I couldn't focus on this next one. Sorry. So NASA is in the news this week because it will open up space travel to its International Space Station to private businesses and private astronauts. So, for instance, you could now partner with Elon Musk and his company, SpaceX, uh, and go up on a private Elon Musk spaceship to visit NASA's wow. International Space Station. Apparently, though, that would cost you $52 million. Yeah, there are people out there with that kind of money. If I had that much money, I would not be going to space. I'd be going to the mall. <laughs> <laughs> and that spaceship with Elon Musk would be weird, like a Burning Man meets <laughs> yeah, be a whole rave thing. thing. Right? You'd have to have a special outfit. Yeah. You'd feel like you were either underdressed or overdressed. Final quote, ready? Yes. All my married friends say that the way we live sounds ideal and we shouldn't change a thing. Who said that? An actress everyone loves to Goop. hate. Goop. Goop. Yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> What's her name, though? Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay. Uh, you can share that point, both of you. I, I'll, I'll share that one with, <laughs> yes. with Tanya. So Gwyneth Paltrow, in an interview with the Sunday Times this week, said that she and her newish husband, they live apart. She's married now. I'm, I'm really She got married again to some guy named Brad something. He, it would be a Brad. Tanya, uh, you love reading gossip magazines. I can't I'm believe so I missed this. <laughs> I know. So she got married a while back to Brad Falchuk, but she told the papers this week, I don't live with him. She has her kids at her house, he has his kids at his house, and they go back and forth, but they don't share a home together. I just don't, I know this sounds so horrible, but I just, everyone has a right to talk, right? Yeah. Everyone has a right to speak. Uh-huh. But. <laughs> Say what you I really feel. I can't wait for what's coming. Say what coming. you really feel. <laughs> it seems like everything that comes from her just doesn't feel right. It's just like, I don't want to hear you say these things, even if it's even if it's really interesting or cool or like, did, oh, I could see how that would be. Did Tanya just cancel Gwyneth Paltrow? I just canceled Gwyneth Paltrow, and I don't even have that authority. I do low-key listen to Goop, though, but she's oh. not. She's only guest host on okay. there. Okay. Yeah. The only roommate I want for life is Netflix. That's it. That is it. Oh, man. On that note, uh, the game is over. Who won? You I think it was like one and a half to one and a half. Oh, you're so it diplomatic. So... Did I do that? Y'all can uh... share the title. Let's share the title. <laughs> Todd is like, I want to win. Uh, <laughs> congratulations to you both. And as always, congratulations to Gwyneth Paltrow because you're still rich and better than us. <laughs> um, all right. That concludes Who Said That. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every Friday, we ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week. We encourage folks to brag. Y'all do. Anjali, hit the tape. Hi, Sam. This is Savannah. And this is Bryce. We're seniors at Sentinel High School in Missoula, Montana. The, the best, best thing that, that is going, going to happen this week is graduation on Saturday. Big thanks from the class of 2019. Woo! Hi Sam, this is Ron from Arroyo Grande, California. And the best part of my week was going to the annual father-daughter dance with my seven-year-old at our local community center. The best part of my week, I am officially the owner of my home after 21 years. My best thing is completing my first triathlon with friends. I finished my first year as a teacher and my wife and I bought our first home. The best thing that happened to me this week was the 10th birthday party I threw for my dog Wallace. Hi Sam, this is Angie from Dayton, Ohio. Not only did school get out for summer break, but on the last day I was recognized at an all-district meeting as a 30-year teacher. 
Hey Sam, this is Christine from New York City. The best thing that happened to me this week was that two weeks ago I lost my wallet on the train. Today I came home to a package from a good Samaritan who not only found it but decided to mail it back to me with everything untouched. Hey Sam, this is Rachel from Minneapolis. And the best thing that happened to me this week was watching the debut of the sister band that my three little girls have created when they perform together for their piano recital. They're 14, 5, and 4, and they have far more differences and similarities, but when they play music together, it's so clear that they're each other's biggest fans. Well, with the exception of me. Mama super fan. Thanks, Sam. I love your show. Thanks. Have a great week. I definitely want some audio of uh, that sister band. I want to hear them. That's got to be your playing music. That's oh, your yeah. walk on music That's my walk for the debate. I love it. I love it. Oh, man. Thanks to all those listeners. Uh, congrats to Savannah and Bryce and the seniors in the class of 2019. Uh, note to everyone that's going to get anyone a graduation gift give them cash. I know. Give them money. money. Just give them money. Don't buy them anything. Give them cash. Thanks to all the other folks you heard there, too. Ron, Kathy, Christopher, Douglas, Jennifer. Happy birthday, Wallace the dog. Uh, thanks to Angie and Jess and Andrew and Christine and Rachel. We love hearing from y'all. Keep it coming. You can share with me the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. Just record the sound of your voice and email that voice file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, we're going to go out on Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. This was the walk-on song for Andrew Yang when he took the stage in Iowa this week as one of the 27,000 candidates for president. Warren walked out to 9 to 5. Love it. Love it, Get love a little it, love Dolly it. Parton in my you life. Know? That's right. All right, many thanks to the entire team that helps make It's Been a Minute happen. The show was produced this week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. We had additional production help this week from Thomas Liu. Our fearless editors are Jordana Hokeman and Alex McCall. Our director of programming and drinker of Diet Mountain Dew Code Red is NPR's Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Grundman. And special thanks to Kate McMurrin for engineering help from KQED in San Francisco. All right, till next time. Thank you for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon. This song kills at karaoke. Like, I, like take my word for it, all of you. Everybody. More than Cher kills at karaoke? Oh, yeah, totally. This oh, is yeah, because like, people are dancing. They don't even care how you sound. Yeah. It's not-